I'm turning this evening to Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 2 and verse 20. Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And our subject is removing faith's greatest obstacle. There are many obstacles to faith, but there's one that probably exceeds all others. It's a universal hindrance to faith in Christ experienced by people. It's particularly noticeable in youth, but it survives into old age also. It's an impediment that besets everyone, irrespective of culture, irrespective of background. Whether you're emotional and impulsive, or whether you're pragmatic and thoughtful, whatever your personality or disposition, there is one great impediment to faith, and it is self-regard. Self-regard, the greatest obstacle to belief in God and in Christ. You might call it pride. You might just call it self-centeredness. But self-regard is the wider and the more courteous term, but it's a tremendous disadvantage for seeking Christ. And that's what this verse focuses on. It says the Apostle Paul, speaking of what happened to him years before the time he writes these words, I am crucified with Christ. I am crucified with Christ. The great I. There are eight personal pronouns in the verse. Five I's and three me's. It's all about self-regard. The great problem of self. Now we live in a self-generation, as never before, the me, me, me era, where we are programmed and taught from earliest years to regard ourselves first and foremost. Years ago, unselfishness used to be honoured. Low self-regard used to be admired. Humility was admired. Not now. Now, pride and self and selfishness and selfish ambition, these things are applauded. These things are greatly praised. There are endless podcasts made by so-called personalities vaunting pride and self-regard and ambition. This is the age when things that used to be underground, things that you were somewhat ashamed of, are now boasted of and paraded. Extraordinary days in which we live. No wonder it's an age of atheism, 
because this is the greatest imaginable impediment to faith in God. From the earliest days of a dear little child's tantrums, self-regard is operating in human life and expressing itself all the way through the journey to the end. It even interferes with things that you would think would banish it. Let's say people are in love and people are close. Let's imagine husband and wife very close together. And yet all too often battles emerge, battles of will, the great desire for self-regard, my way, my tastes, my pleasures, my convenience, and so on. Self-regard, tremendous enemy of faith, because self-regard doesn't want to worship God. And self-regard doesn't want to rely on God. Self-regard doesn't want to seek anything from God. And these things are disastrous. No connection No help from on high, no praise and thanksgiving and seeking after God, all because of pride or self-reliance or self-regard. It's here in the verse, says the apostle, I am crucified with Christ. That tremendous ego has been crucified. Of course, it's still there. There'll always be a battle with it, but it's domination has been crushed. Nevertheless, I live, he says, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. If I speak of God, then that self-regard will rise up within many a heart, No, what counts is my appearance, my status, my convenience, my pleasure, my views, my whims, and so on. Always wanting to express itself. Let's start by talking about the Bible's view of man. The Bible has a very high view of man, men and women. And it also has a very low view of men and women. It has both, and you have to understand that. The Bible has the highest imaginable view of the human race. The Bible sees the human race as the pinnacle of God's creation and the purpose of God's creation. According to Scripture, man is made in the image of God. Man is made to reflect some of God's own attributes and characteristics. Of course, not all of them by any means. And the reflection is a very faint reflection. But nevertheless, he's made in the image of God. He's made in God's purpose. According to scripture, everything that is made is made with a view to mankind. Man is the pinnacle. Man is the purpose. 
Everything else is created to support and serve and assist and provide an environment for the one who is the pinnacle of creation, the man and the woman. That's the biblical view of man. Now, the Bible sees man as created for communion with God, the highest imaginable purpose. The Bible sees men and women made for eternity to inhabit the everlasting ages in the kingdom of God and under the blessing of God where there will be no sin and no failure and no fault at all. Man is made uniquely. He's got the power of reason. He's vastly different. We often rehearse these things. He's vastly different from the highest of the animals. He has the power of reason. He has deeply sophisticated affections and feelings. He has a mind and he has a heart and he has a will. He has the power of choice and decision in so very many things. All these are unique to the human race. They are special to him. He isn't driven entirely by instincts. He has power, volitional power. He has creativity. He has communication skills and language. He has a conscience and a knowledge of right and wrong. He has a soul. He has a spiritual part of him which has the potential for communion with God and everlasting life. So this is the biblical view of man. Why, the Atheistic view of man is so low. What's the unbeliever's view of man? You're just an animal. That's all you are, a higher animal. There is nothing more to you. There is no purpose. There is no significance. One day you'll be gone, no more, forgotten. The whole world will break up and disappear. There won't have been any purpose in anything. It's the lowest imaginable view you could possibly have of the complex creature, which is man. The Bible has the highest and the noblest view of man. But, on the other hand, it also has a very low view. Man is a fallen being, fallen from God's favor. The human race is in sin. The human race is depraved. Oh, it's capable of good, good thoughts, good acts, but they're swamped and contaminated and spoiled by the tendency to sin and a wayness from Almighty God, an infatuation with the material. Man is a fallen creature. He's in debt to God. He steals the things that God has given him. He steals his years, his life, his talents, his powers. He steals God's air. He steals the energy that God gives him. And he insults God and abandons God and spends these things upon himself. So the Bible has at the same time a low view of man. He's a humbled, fallen creature, 
a guilty sinner in the sight of God who will stand before God in judgment and he'll be banished eternally and punished from the presence of God for his offences, his disobedience, his unbelief, his behaviour and his rejection of his maker, his creator. All these things will come to pass. And in this respect too, the view of the scripture and the Bible is the opposite of the view of men and women. On the one hand, they insult mankind and say, we're just animals. And on the other hand, they vaunt mankind and they say, we are God. We can do as we please. We can do whatever we want in our lives and in this world. And we can, we can do it. We can accomplish anything we set our minds to. And our ruined world is the evidence of the failure of that view. The Bible is the opposite to human thinking. A high view of man and yet a low view of man at the same time. And it's this ego, this self-regard, which is the problem. I am crucified with Christ. That's what needs to happen. The pride, the selfishness, the self-regard needs to be pulled down. I want to try and put it in a slightly different way. Many years ago, well, 62, three years ago, when uh, as a youngster I was in national service, I had an experience which rather astonished me. I, I was posted into a unit for a short time where one of the tasks of this unit was to implement what was called in those far-off days a mobilisation a mobilisation would be a national emergency where the country was at war. Why it had happened a few years earlier than my time with the Suez Crisis. And that was a mistaken venture, if ever there was one, but it, it led to a national emergency and the call-up of all the reservists to the forces, people who'd done their service but now were on the reserve list, and the fear was that this might be necessary in some situation again. And all military reservists for, would have to be called up. Where would they go? How would it be organized? Well, for security purposes, it was organized regionally. And uh, in various parts of the country, the arrangements were made where uh, there'd be an office, a military office, and you'd have all the addresses of people who were to be called up to a camp there. Maybe one, two thousand people would be assembled there. All reservists, all people who'd done military service were still on the reserve list. But how would they be looked after? Oh, you had documents in the office which enabled you to... Uh, take a Land Rover and go and serve papers on various uh, uh, places in the community. 
Every hotel in this particular town was designated to be requisitioned in the event of a, an emergency. And we had the papers to simply serve requisition orders and take these places over. And we had the papers to take over medical centres. And we had the papers to take over garage companies servicing motor cars. Everything in the area was all... Those, those, those firms didn't know. The, the principals of those companies, the owners, they didn't know. They were all subject to requisition. I don't think such a thing happens today, but it did 60 years ago. It was still all in being. And at the, at the sound of the alarm, we could requisition all kinds of things. There was no appeal. You couldn't refuse. You couldn't say, no, this is my business. This is my place. You're not having this. No, the papers took it over. No objection, no appeal. And I think of that in connection with self-regard. You know, when we're away from God, we think we're free. I'm not religious. I'm free. I'm free to do what I please. Oh, no. The core of our being has been requisitioned by something. It's been taken over by self-regard. It's taken over my mind. It's taken over my heart. It's taken over my will. I don't know it, but I've been requisitioned, taken over. I read a book a few years ago by a, a man who'd been a, a Englishman who'd been a colonel in the Indian Army. And uh, during World War II, he was retired and he was settled near Folkestone, Dover, down on the Kent coast there. And uh, what his book was about was how he joined the Home Guard and what his experiences were. But something interested me profoundly in connection with requisitioning. He lived in a nice detached house in a comfortable street with numerous detached houses with orchards and grounds. And all his neighbours had gone because it was so near the Kent coast and bombs were dropped there, you know, and uh, constantly. So they'd moved out to quieter areas and he remained. And the neighbours said to him, look after my property, will you? Keep an eye on my property. But within weeks of them disappearing and leaving the area, all these properties were, guess what? Requisitioned for troops, and they were all these nice properties were occupied by troops, and they made such a mess of them and treated them badly and broke them up, and half of them almost needed rebuilding. There was no uh, objecting to this. There was no refusal. That's what requisition is about. If it ever applies, then officialdom comes along, and it has the power, and it passes the legislation, and the papers are issued, and you've lost your property. This church had a college just next door. Well, we understand it was World War II, but the college was 
moved away the students to a safer area because of the bombing, and immediately that college was requisitioned and became the wartime headquarters of the London Fire Brigade. Requisitioning is very powerful. You're requisitioned. Your mind is taken over by self-regard. All your plans and your thoughts, how will this affect me? How will I look? What will it do for me? Is it what I want? Is it, it dominates your life. Your mind has been requisitioned by self-regard. You are not in charge. Your self-regard rules your life. Your heart, your affections, your tastes your, are fashioned by self-regard and dominated. Your will, you will choose what's good for you. Does this sound like extreme talk? Think about it, friends. This is what happens to us, away from God. We think we're free. We're not free. The great obstacle to faith, self-regard, rules within us and dominates life. But look at the verse 20. Paul refers back to his conversion. When he came to Christ and he was moved by God to see his need and he repented of his sin I won't go into his Damascus road experience tonight and he yielded his life up to Christ and Christ changed him and broke the power of that requisition the power of that self-regard which dominated his life that pride which ruled everything so he says, I, the great I, the great me, has been crucified with Christ. He died to pay the price and the punishment of sin for me, and he broke the rule of self-regard. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. The hijacked aircraft has been handed back to the pilots. Christ has come in. He gives you back your life, your mind, your heart, your will. Now you can live with the blessing of Christ in charge of your own faculties and departments. You're given a new start and a new nature, and a new understanding. You're in communion with Christ. You can walk with him and pray to him. You've got a new status. You're a child of God. Everything is different because the ruling ego has been smashed and broken and the requisition papers torn up. I do hope that doesn't sound melodramatic, friends, but it is so important to see what happens to us away from God and how we are governed and ruled in ourselves. Now there's humility. You know, years ago, let me talk about two people I knew. Well, one I didn't actually know. I only read about him. 
and the other I knew. Two young men, and they were the greatest show-offs in the world. They were extroverts, they were performers, and they got into the then pop world and began to perform. One was very well educated, the other fairly well educated, but they gave themselves entirely to this world and they were in it and they were having a whale of a time. And then both came under the influence of Christian testimony and they both heard the gospel and both of them sought Christ and tell us that they repented of their sin and found him. Now the one I knew personally, I didn't meet for some years after this, but when I reconnected with him and met him, he was certainly no longer a show-off. He was still a bit of an extrovert, but he was not a show-off. He was a changed person, had a new principle of life with him, within him. There was a new modesty, a difference about him altogether. He wasn't ruled by that great I anymore. What I can accomplish, how far I can get, how much money I can earn, how big I can appear, how many admirers I can have. He was altogether different. He was in control of his life. The other, who I didn't actually know, but I read about, to this day, it doesn't seem to me he's one bit changed. He's still the show-off he was. He still spends all his time preening himself. I don't mention names. He still is a, a performer. He's still all out for himself, besotted drunk with his found numbers and all the rest of it. He never changed. Both were influenced by the Christian faith. One really found Christ and could say with the Apostle Paul, I am crucified with Christ. I don't believe the other could really say that. The I was never crucified. He wasn't really converted. He hasn't changed. He's no different. This is a tremendous thing to truly come to Christ, to repent of your sin, to yield your life to him, and to have his power set you free from the great I and change you within and make an altogether different person of you and set you on a new pathway. These things are wonderful, dear friends. Why would Christ ever have come from heaven to suffer and to die on a cross, to pay the punishment of sin for someone like me? Or may I say it, someone like you? Why? Surely we are so trivial to him. We are so small. 
We are so undeserving. He has so much to do to change us, to bless us. He has to have infinite patience with us. We're so slow to serve him and to reform. Why should he come and suffer more suffering than any amount of human beings have ever suffered? He had to take the eternal punishment of sin for each one of those who would be saved, compressed into a period of time. He had to suffer in his holy soul the ugliness and uncleanness of our guilt and punishment. Why? Why did he do it? Why not just write us off and start again? There's only one explanation given in the Bible. The astonishing love of God and the mercy and compassion of God and the love of Christ that he set his eyes upon us in eternity past and determined to come and to suffer and to die to purchase for himself a people who he would save and change and bless. There is nothing like the love of Christ. How foolish we can be. I'll stay with my self-regard I'll stay with its chains around me. Remember the words of Charles Wesley? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I rose the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. That's what it is to be released from self-regard, from pride, from selfishness, and to be set on the road to heaven, a companion of Christ, in communion with him, changed and saved for all eternity by his astonishing love. How can we reject him and refuse him and continue to turn away from him. Let's pray. Oh God, our gracious heavenly Father, look upon us all and help us. Deliver us from our obduracy and resistance and foolishness. Show us, O oh Lord, the way of salvation and the goodness of our Saviour, and lead us to trust in him we ask it in his name for his sake amen